The information in this podcast is current on the day of recording. It is general advice only and does not take your personal situation into account. It may not be suitable for you. Participants in this podcast may also own the stocks discussed. For a full list of current recommendations and stocks owned by staff, members of Intelligent Investor can visit www.intelligentinvestor.com.au. Welcome to Stock Take. My name's Gaurav Sodi. Joining me today is analyst Mickey Mordek. Hi, Mickey. Thanks, Gaurav. With us also is analyst James Greenhouse. Hey, James. Hey, Gaurav. Mickey, let's begin with you this week. We've been slowly introducing coverage on some of these hot tech stocks, um, and there are a few that are hotter and techier than <laughs> zero, which we've actually looked at for many years, to be fair. It's not exactly a new stock for the team, but you've taken on coverage and you found some interesting quirks about it. Um, talk to us about why zero is attractive to you, even though from um, a, a cursory glance, it looks absolutely outrageous, the price. Yeah, I mean, well, this is this is one where you have to probably, as, as it might be taboo to say, but kind of ignore some of the headline multiples on it um, to, to come and, and kind of if you just focus on what this business is doing, then, um, you know, it's pretty clear that it's a, it's a relatively high, high quality company. Um, so, yeah, so I guess they, they, they've got a – so Zero obviously provides accounting software uh, to small, medium-sized businesses. Um, and more and more over time, they're, they're transitioning towards, um, you know, providing tools for small and medium businesses, so less of an accounting focus, I guess, but that's their um, bread and butter, I, I guess, so to speak. Uh, and um, there's a couple of reasons that they've been so successful so far. You know, obviously, everyone's quite probably well aware of the shift to the cloud. They were the first to, to make that shift, and obviously, that provides a lot of benefits in terms of um, giving people access, you know, from, from home and um, greater affordability of the platform and things like that, more 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 updates. Um, you see that all the time, really. You see, you see all the time, whenever something industry changes, it's rare that the incumbent leaders initiate and take advantage of that change. It's usually an external company that comes in and takes the opportunity, and that's definitely what's happened here. They, Zero came from nowhere, this tiny little New Zealand startup, and it took on these multi-billion dollar giants and, and killed some of them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you because if, if you look at the incentives, um, I guess for some of these bigger companies, they didn't, yeah. they, they would have had to have disrupted their own business model, basically. Yeah. Um, so the incentive just wasn't there, and I guess as you get bigger, um, you probably you're not quite as nimble. Maybe you're, you're more um, focused on on growing profits as as opposed to looking at um, you know new new ideas and new ways to disrupt yourself. So it's also just um, hard. I mean, in technology, perhaps more than in almost any other sector, to be the incumbent is to have inherent um, disadvantages embedded because you have to use old technology. You have um, processes and systems in place that were built to handle old technology. So when something new happens, you're just not built for it. Uh, and, and you see this in the car industry with electrification. The existing car makers aren't optimized for building electric vehicles, and that's why they've been so slow and so far behind 
Tesla, but I digress. Let's get back yeah. to <laughs> <laughs> back to zero. Um, so, so what were you saying, Mickey? Where were you? Yeah, were you? well, um, until I was so rudely interrupted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, no, so I mean, so uh, zero. Uh, yeah, so they made that shift to the cloud, and yeah. then obviously that that gave them a big advantage in terms of being able to provide updates um, more regularly for the software, um, and they also provided a platform that was open uh, for third-party developers, and so that attracted a lot of um, third parties to the software um, to to make the platform better, um, and and that provides a bit of a um, an ongoing of positive kind of feedback loop yeah. there because as as they make the platform better, um, that attracts more users, and then more developers want to work on that platform. So it becomes a lot stickier, doesn't it? Because people um, there's people are already embedded their own systems into zero, and so therefore it actually makes the one of this, this is a true platform business. Is what we talk about when we talk about platform businesses. They sort of embed other um, other sort of business other sort of programs within them, and then become um, useful and very almost impo impossible to let go of for everyone who's involved in the platform. For sure. And everyone's yeah. trying to be a platform, and this is one business that's more from software to platform successfully, probably better than anyone else. Yeah. Yeah, I think like more and more what, you, what you're probably seeing in software is just that the software is actually less valuable than building the platform. Mm -hmm. If you can build the platform and encourage people to build on top of your platform, that provides a whole new level of stickiness than just having a piece of software that you can sell. Um, even though software in and of itself is, is you know, quite generally quite a sticky business like people get used to the software and changing programs and you know moving your data across and things like that or just learn knowing how to use a um, program um, once you add on a whole bunch of apps and things like that as well uh, and and just make the platform better um, yeah you get you get really good um, economics so what you're seeing now for zero is they're really trying to push hard on that platform um, lever and and that's growing really quickly so um, you know revenue there I think grew I think they just came out with their half year results it was up 110 percent or something like that um, so are these actual um, they're selling uh, are they actually getting revenue from other business? business customers is that what this you're talking about yeah so okay. the, um so third-party businesses say for example um if you're a plumber or you're a tradesman or something and you want to have um you know booking your jobs uh at the same time or do invoicing through the zero platform for example there'll be very very niche kind of industry specific functions that you'd like um and so these developers come in and they they just enrich the, the platform or the software by adding more features, making it more kind of um, customized to that particular industry. And so um, that provides revenue for both Zero and for that third-party developer. Um, and then so this is this is the kind of revenue line that for Zero should hopefully grow over time. Um, if you look at, I think, Salesforce, for example, they generate about nearly a fifth of their revenue from the platform. Jeez, is um, that right? Yeah, it's, I think it's 15 to 20%, oh, something right. like that. And so zero is still like 5% or something. So there's quite a, quite a bit of runway, potentially grow that platform revenue. And um, yeah, just, just I think that's the main, main strategic focus for now. Um, I reckon so the real attraction of zero, though, I think the reason we've looked at it a few times, perhaps more than any other of the wax stocks, is uh, the revenue recognition and the accounting actually deliberately hide how profitable this business is and some of the discretionary decisions of management hide how profitable that business is. So the PEs look absurd, but Mickey, explain to us why 
we should not rely on those PEs to form a judgment on value. Yeah, so, well, I mean, it, it's, it depends on the way that you look at the business. Um, but, I mean, traditionally, from an accounting sense, you if you're spending money on sales and marketing, that is expense that just gets run through your profit and loss. Uh, and, but, but what... Um, what happens in Zero's case is they keep their customers for a really long time uh, on average. So across the whole customer base, it's, I think, seven years. But if you look at just, you know, Australia and New Zealand, it's probably more than double that. Um, and so you can say, well, they're spending, um, you know, X amount on, uh, you know, acquiring a customer. But actually, you know, that all gets expensed in the first period. But then, you know, if you expense that over the whole customer lifetime, you probably get a better idea of how profitable it is. But... Yeah, yeah, I wonder Let, if... Let's unpack that a little. This is a really key point about Zero, and I'm not sure it's all that well understood. So let's say a customer comes on board. To get a customer on board might cost you, I'm using just wild numbers here, might cost you um, $30 or so. Um, and you'd expense that $30 up front, and you collect maybe in the first year, let's say $10, or uh, well in the first month, sorry, $10 mm. um, for that customer. So your accounting entries in the first month you're down 20 bucks um, because you're only collecting $10 and you're expensing um, $30. So you actually have to um, wait um, to, to build revenue stream. Uh, yep, it, it takes time to realize profitability in this business. Mm. And if you're only looking at valuation at a point in time, mm. it's completely misleading, which is what is so attractive about a company like this to, to value hounds. Yeah, yeah. So n now you, um, I mean, it's uh, if you could, if you could have seen that, I suppose. Yes, four or five that, years that's ago, the thing. If you could see, <laughs> it would have been the perfect time yeah, to. But have that uh, was the first SaaS yeah. company. It was really, it's really a, a mind warping um, experience to try and analyze a SaaS business mm. without having a lot of experience with SaaS businesses. It's yeah. taken them and others to sort of educate the market about how to do it properly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, so the, I guess you've got to pay really close attention to those unit economics. Um, what's what's driving those? So then those things like you know um, how how long they keep a customer for, uh, what are the average profits that they make per customer, um, and looking closely at those and so and comparing that to the co cost of actually acquiring those customers. And generally, if the if the lifetime value um, of your customer is is a lot higher than that cost of acquisition. Um, then it makes sense to keep spending money to to keep going out. So, but you'll get a really ugly looking financial um, yeah. statement. So, uh, yeah. So we like the business. We can understand that valuation uh, may mislead, and there's actually a lot more profitability than it looks like. So why is this still not on the buy list, and why are we still cautious about it, Mickey? Uh, well, I mean, it's, it's so although it, it um, you know, you can't take the numbers um, at face value, it still looks pretty expensive. Uh, and I think, you know, there's some optimistic assumptions definitely priced in uh, for now. So uh, it's got a really big competitor in the in the US in Intuit and uh, Intuit's more than double the size of um, Zero, and they've done a great job of building their own online product as well. Uh, and so um, the US market makes up a little over a third, I believe, of kind of the English-speaking dressable market. So it's going to be a tough, tough nut to crack uh, the US, definitely with, you know, QuickBooks fighting so hard there. Um, so, uh, yeah, given those risks, you know, uh, it's probably not growing fast enough in the US. Um, but, uh, but I mean, it certainly looks like a very strong business. And, like, if I was owning it, I probably wouldn't, I wouldn't sell it or anything like that. But... 
Oh. The, thing, the thing I want to say to members, though, is I mean, there's been a management diktat for us to cover these you know, the WAC stocks. So we've covered WiseTech and Zero, and to me, Zero is undoubtedly far and away the best of any of the WAC stocks, and the others, I think, are generally probably rubbish. Um, so, but Zero is a good one. But as a member, you don't need to buy any of these stocks to have a good portfolio. I mean, and we, we all look at them and think, yeah, they're, they're, they're good businesses, they've done well, and you're naturally attracted to businesses or to companies or stocks that have gone up uh, a long way. But the reality is you don't need to chase these stocks. You don't need to um, buy these companies. I mean, Zero is now, now has a $10 billion market cap. It is not a, it is not a small company. It's, it's got a lot into the price and so you, you can ignore them you can actually look for other opportunities and and so yeah while we want to understand the business and the economics and and so on to see how this might work for this company or for other companies in the future you don't you you, you don't need to um, worry about having missed out on zero there'll be another stock along um, in the future it's, i think as a um, full-time investor one of the hardest things to do is to sit back with your experience and your caution and your judgment and not to partake in rampant profit-taking that everyone else is partaking and I found this whole wax experience quite difficult because I agree with you James especially I think clear it's clear that zero and perhaps Altium uh, are, the, are the best out of that bunch and some of them are rubbish and I would arguably put wise tech perhaps yeah, in that. and I think Appen is yeah, I don't even understand yeah. how that's yeah. on that valuation it's crazy to me yeah rubbish they're both of them yeah <laughs> <laughs> look at those two grumpy old men <laughs> um, but it's been really difficult just to hang back and to stick to your own judgment and to stick to your own strategy while um, I'll, I'll say it uh, the fools are all making money um, yeah, that's right exactly it, 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 yeah. it feels embarrassing to miss these things yeah. but we need to just let that go and yeah. you, as an investor you just suck it up and say look I'll look for the next opportunity and it's a reminder that successful investing is more about behavior and psychology than it is about analysis. Yep. If you can get that bit right, you don't have to get all the analysis right all the time. Yep. And that's, I think that's what we um, increasingly strive to get right. I think the analysis part, and it's actually is the easier part. It's, it's the behavioral stuff, especially when you apply it to a scenario like this, that's hard to master. Mm. But Mickey, you've mastered it very nicely indeed. It was a cracking article. I think we read the, the first two paragraphs and everyone in the office turned to you and said, nice one. <laughs> so I'll repeat that again. That was a cracking article. If you haven't read it, um, Mickey's Zero articles um, up and definitely worth a read. James, you've been looking at another former market darling, um, Freedom still, still Foods. Still market darling, actually. Is it still, really? I, th I think so, yes. All right. Well, <laughs> let's discuss this a little bit because I found this curious as well because for me, this has all the hallmarks of a business seat I, I wouldn't really want to get involved with. Um, but it has been a hot stock for a while. Um, I thought it had fallen off that hot stock perch, but apparently not. Um, tell us about Freedom Foods and why you even bothered to look at it. Well, I was told to. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what the, did you find? Yeah, I, it wasn't. I mean, when I, when I first looked at it, I thought, yeah, this is not the sort of company I'd be interested in. It's mm. sort of fairly capital intensive. And the more I looked at it, the more I thought that that, that is the case. Um, so it, it's um, it, Freedom Foods is, as you can imagine, it's a food company. It started off in um, gluten-free cereals and those sort of products. And it, it actually did quite well. And it, it sort of was in the health space. So that's naturally quite a, a positive space to be in in the food sector. It's growing faster than other sectors, obviously. Um, but they've um, what Freedom Foods has been doing for the past four or five years is 
um, is building a lot of new factories and entering a lot of new markets. Um, and they're probably their fastest growing two divisions. And, and there is not the cereals division anymore, but the first fastest growing division is the um, uh, dairy and nutritional segment. So that's um, they're basically a, the largest UHT milk uh, processor in Australia. They built that like the largest. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So they have they they um, source milk and then UH ultra heat yeah. treat it and then um, obviously sell it to Coles and Woolworths. But they're also got a uh, got a fairly big business now selling into China. Mm. Um, so and also Southeast Asia. So they've sort of jumped on uh, jumped on the bandwagons. Maybe the wrong way to put it, but they've jumped on the bandwagon of selling. <laughs> but you put it anyway. Yeah, yeah I will. <laughs> dairy dairy. dairy dairy products into China because I mean that that is where some of the growth is coming from mm. um, so and, and the other business um, that they're also is growing quite fast is their plant-based beverages um, division and that um, you might remember I mean soy milk has sort of been around for a long time it sort of has a reputation of sort of hippies and vegans and vegetarians and so on and I, and I used to drink it um, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and and now now it's, it's actually soy milk is now it's lost a bit of favor with the market and now it's more about the sort of the the almond milks and the pea oh milks God. and all those sort almond of things. Milk. Have you ever tried almond milk? No. Almond milk is basically water and sugar with a tiny bit of crushed yes. up almond in that, it. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. It's 2% almonds. 2% like almonds. Looked, looked yeah. It, yeah, it's the biggest rort. Yep. I actually noticed that the other day with um, some butter. What what happened to butter? Yeah, well, you butter. know the you know the butter that comes in the package, and uh, it mm. says contains butter. And when, <laughs> when you look at it, it's um yeah, it was like thirty percent butter. I tell so you, you got to look at the package of the the butter. You should always go premium butter. The butter is one thing that life is too short to go with cheap butter. <laughs> yeah. you, you should try that some Danish stuff. That is great. Oh okay, yeah, cool. Sorry, we're digressing again once more. <laughs> I can't believe it's butter. <laughs> um, yeah, so they're, they're the two main mm. divisions for freedom: is the plant-based beverages and the dairy. And they're both, and they're growing really, really fast. There's no mm -hmm. doubt that um, what's happening is as a, as the factories are maturing and ramping up, and the products are maturing, they're actually selling more products. So their sales are rising, their earnings are rising quite fast. But they've spent a lot of money to get there, and this this is where it falls down for me. Is they've spent um, 170 million dollars last year and about 500 million dollars in total over the past four four That's or five years. So it's wow. a lot of money. How are they funded that? This, this is the thing. When I when I looked at this company, they've had an equity raising every single year for the past four years. Wow. And so I mean that money's coming from shareholders' pockets. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you can you can effectively buy growth that way by spending money, but you've then got to make sure it is actually going to. Turn up is going to turn up as earnings, and more importantly, free free cash flow down the track. And that's what worries me is that, especially for a food company, you can't just um, develop a product and then forget about it. Yep. You need to keep pushing it. You need to develop new products. Um, as they've seen, their soy milk product is falling away, and now it's all about almond milks and pea milks and and um, and milks that don't split in coffee. And they're the ones. Pea milk just now. has a really bad, <laughs> bad sounding ring to it. Actually, let's, let's, not, <laughs> let's not mention that one again. It seems like um, that that space though is attracting so much capital at the moment yeah. just in general like it seems yeah. like a really um, in favor kind of area and you that's right yeah and that's what worries me is I perhaps think this company might be chasing the sort of fad foods yeah. and that, that's what worries me that you know in four or five years that might change they'll need to develop something else and then they've got to build another factory out at Shepparton to you know to to to, uh, to manufacture these these things so I so it just it. doesn't strike me as, as really the best sort of business in the world you, you can you can purchase growth but and that's what they're effectively doing I think by putting all this money into factories but yeah it doesn't really strike me as a great business no I, I would agree with that the thing that concerns me actually very similar to you James is when a business goes off and sinks a whole bit of much bunch of capital but the returns are coming from a competitive industry with um, unknowable demand that's dominated by fads and fashions 
and lots of competition, it seems like a recipe for me just to sink a lot of capital for an unknowable and likely low return. And it's a really unattractive prospect. The the one saving grace about this company, though, James, is um, it is an owner-operator. The same family's been in control for a long time, and that does fill one with a bit of comfort. Yes. If that's what you're looking Th- that's for, that's right. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I think that um, that it was it was asked for me to have a look at it because I think it is an owner managed company, and generally, you know, they're not going to spend capital that's right. with the idea of blowing it up. Um, but who knows what their end game is? I mean, the thing is, they they may be intending to sell the business. They, they'll ramp it up and then sell it, maybe. Um, and and they're also um, the the family that that. Um, uh, owns 52% of this company, also is a supplier to the company as well. So, ah, so there are some okay. related party issues, and um, so yeah. So there, there, there's other sort of things going on there that um, that may may mean why why you know whether it's owner managed or, or not um, may mean may not make much difference. Can I quickly ask you about that milk processing business? Is is it a, is it a big advantage to be the largest in Australia, and, and does the scale lock out competitors? It it seems to me that that's Yes, there's a lot of capital being pouring into there, but it's not difficult to replicate and it's likely to attract competition should margins ever get high enough. I absolutely agree. I mean, you know, this, this company has raised $500 million without any problem at all. Yeah. Um, and so clearly, you know, that, that capital is there for other companies should they wish to do it. And we all know that the dairy sector is pretty hot and, and it's been hot in here and supplying to China as well. So there's capital available for that. Mm. And... Um, you know, and, and don't forget, New Zealand is a big dairy market as well. The so biggest, it's not, yeah. yeah. So it's not like Australia is the only game in town here. Yep. Um, so it's you're right. I, I, while I think it's it's currently sort of a hot segment, and people want to buy milk products, and people in China want to buy milk products, and, and that probably will continue. Uh, but it, as you say, Gaurav, there's no real barrier to entry here, and capital is not really a barrier to entry in these things necessarily. And some other companies will. And there are plenty of other dairy companies out there who are investing in, in facilities and um, and you know and taking advantage of, of good prices, which are current at the moment, but may not be there forever. I've just started taking a look at A2 Milk, just in the early stages. I've got lots of other interesting stuff on my plate, but A2 Milk is one of them. And it was interesting to compare, um, I think it's called Milk Lab, um, the Freedom Foods version. Yes. Uh, milk Lab with A2 Milk. It's just, Milk Lab seems like a... It, it's just a, a hodgepodge of different bits and of pieces put together with the hope of trying to find a new hit product. Whereas A2 Milk is a really focused competitor who know exactly what they're doing. They have one strategy and one plan and they don't own assets. They know, understand that they're a marketing business and the returns are incredible. It, it just seems like a much more uh, nimble and um, ferocious competitor. Whereas Milk Lab to me seems like a lumbering conglomerate that really doesn't have um, a clear plan. Sorry, sorry. I mean, Milk Lab is a division of, a division of, 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 of yes. Freedom. That's right. That's right yes. yes, I mean, exactly right. And that was one of my concerns as well is that Freedom Foods, it just, it's not focused and it has uh, extraneous divisions. It has a specialty seafood division and maybe they'll it'll, they'll get rid of those in time. But it just That would be a big me. signal um, if, if yeah, they did yeah. that. Think, and it, yeah, and certainly if they focused down to maybe those yep. two best divisions mm. um, and, and just simplified their business a bit. But it's just, it's a very complicated business. Lots of different customers, lots of different markets and still a big supply to Coles and Woolworths, which is, you know, they're, they're not known for letting yeah. their suppliers earn high returns. I think that's a really good point as well. Uh, people forget that you, these kind of businesses are really captive to these two companies. And how many how many suppliers have ever made decent returns supplying Coles and Woolies? A lot of people thought Costa was one, and it clearly yes. isn't. I, right. I can't even think of any. I, I cannot think of 
any business that's made fantastic returns supplying the two giants. And I don't think that's going to change. No. Wow, that was thoroughly struck in from the list. Mickey, do you want to <laughs> add any love for Freedom for all Freedom Foods? No. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> it sounds like a yeah, tough, tough business. And um, building consumer brands is hard work. But, I mean, it's probably easier now than it was. But... Um, that, that staying at the top is probably also harder. So I think, I think yeah. we need to acknowledge, maybe I've been quite critical of the company, but I think you're right there, Mickey, is that building consumer brands is hard, but things, there, are some, there are some potentially interesting brands within this company. I think Milk Lab was one of the ones I mentioned. Um, so you know, it's not out of the question that this company um, could have some pretty amazing products and make some pretty good money. And you know, so we're not saying this won't be, it's currently a $1.5 billion um, market cap. It could be a $3 billion market cap in a few years if they get some of those things right. But it just, just doesn't seem the sort of business I would want to hold for the long term. Gents, a lot of people are complaining that there's not many ideas on the market. We're certainly, I think anecdotally, working a little bit harder to find ideas. But something that has popped up recently, JG, uh, we've both written articles about uh, forthcoming potential splits. Um, I've um, covered off on iLuca and the, the, the potential split of the royalty business, and you've covered off on Grain Corp and the potential split of the malt business. And both of those are, are non-conventional ideas, but what they share is this notion that uh, a demerger can often be an attractive opportunity. Just explain to us where this idea comes from and why it's so beloved by by us and by <laughs> other value investors. Yeah, I'll, I'll admit that I'm sort of, I think, yeah, really I am too. Bi- biased towards <laughs> demergers. <laughs> Definitely. And I need to be aware that not all are wonderful. Mm. Um, but I think the thing about demerge businesses, and so I might use Maltco, the Grain Court business, as an example, is that um, I think um, Maltco... Um, the thing is that that business has been um, stuck within a very, very poor performing company, which is Graham Court, for quite a long time. And so what happens is, first of all, it means the market doesn't have a good idea of the underlying economics and um, and sort of the way that business operates. But second of all, it also means that it pro- probably hasn't had the best management focus. So they're, they're, for me, the two things that make you think as a separate business, it could actually be a much better opportunity. And I, th- I think that that sort of is borne out because when, even when you read the demerger documents that any company releases before a demerger, there's usually not that much information on the demerger business. It's not, it's not like an IPO. You don't get as much information. So it's not until that company's been listed for a year or two that you sort of learn how that business operates and 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 what are the strengths and weaknesses, um, and and particularly why I like Maltco is because Grain Corp's current management, including both the chairman and the CEO, are basically dropping <laughs> Grain Corp and moving across to the malt business. That's very telling. Ex- yeah. that it, to me, that is probably the, the biggest sign mm. that this is this could be a really really good opportunity. Mm. So they're, they're the main reasons I think why in in that case uh, these de- this demerger could be a good one, and that's why I've written a couple of articles on it now and just telling people to watch out for this. We think it's potentially coming. There could be a couple of upsets in the in the meantime, but we're definitely watching it. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, demergers um, are often a good opportunity and, yeah, hopefully this will be one. Yeah, the other thing with demergers is that um, the market in general hasn't focused on this new business. They haven't built relationships with the management. They don't haven't been following it. So there, there can be a bit of information asymmetry there. And I think I can see that in... Um, in Maltco, where the the broker consensus is very low, very different to to your sort of thinking yes. about the business, and I, and I saw this with South Thirty Two as well, where broker consensus was way off 
um, our internal estimates of the value of that business. I, th I think there is a genuine opportunity for an informational edge yes. um, in demergers that just is not present in other parts of the market. And then once a business actually splits, you end up with a really um, dislocated shareholder base. People end up, wake up one morning and find themselves owning a stub that they never wanted to own, never thought they bought and don't really want to keep. And so you end up, I think post the merger is a really interesting time for, for demerged businesses. You often get quite, um, a quite thoughtless selling and, and there's a good chance of picking up a bargain in, in, in that circumstance as well. And sometimes even management talks it down. And we saw that with Coles. Oh, yeah. um, and Coles has turned out to be not as great an opportunity as I thought it would Although be. Although the performance, share price yeah. performance has been really good. Share price done okay. Yeah. But but, uh, but the management were actively talking that business yeah. down around about their the time their incentives were being set. Mm. And it was just pretty clear um, and yeah so it was sort of quite interesting how and now there's been all this information coming out here we're doing cost cuts and so on so so you you can you're right in that sort of initial period especially watch out when management's um, incentives are priced yep. um, they'll probably be talking that business down Mickey your thoughts on demergers yeah, ever, ever mean, bought into one uh, yeah I think that's mo most of the reasons I guess they also have a well, management tend to have a um, an incentive to make sure the new entity is well capitalized as well, and because obviously it's going to the current shareholders, so they don't want to um, screw them over or anything. So I guess it, it gets a bit of um, potential for for new investment uh, within the business as well. Um, but yeah, I think that yeah, it's fertile ground for sure. Yeah, in in Iluka's case, um, Iluka is a mineral sands producer. They they own almost 30% of the global mineral sands business, a multi-billion dollar business, and they've never consistently made decent returns. So it's a pretty crappy business, to, to despite having um, notional dominance. But within that company is this money printing machine that just um, has a, a royalty from a large chunk of um, BHP's um, uh, iron ore operations. BHP has four basic um, hubs in iron ore, and. Uh, one of those hubs has to pay a royalty to um, Iluca for every tonne of iron ore it mines, and it's linked to volume and price. And so it's a really reliable source of income that costs nothing. It's free money. It's one of the best little businesses I've actually seen. So to be able to, to get access to that royalty, I, I just think it would attract a different shareholder. It would attract much higher prices than what's currently embedded into Iluca. So the opportunity to free that up, I, I think, will generate a lot of value. So... Um, it's going to be hard, quite hard to value because um, yeah, it depends on prices, but it also depends on. I think you mentioned there's there's a big um, uh, upgrade of the of the mine or the facility. Yeah, the, the yeah. source of the royalty is going to be expanded. Yeah, um, and and that's actually triggering this this review of the royalty because it will end up being the majority of of Iluka's business. And yeah. um, you know, shareholders in Iluka are there because they have a view on mineral sands or they want exposure to mineral sands. No one is adequately valuing this royalty but they will post the split so uh, i think this makes um like it's actually a very similar situation to grain corp you've got a lousy parent business mm. um potentially spinning off a really interesting stub and and that could be a source of opportunity so we're just keeping an eye on these two um but just wanted to get the message out generally that these demergers are really interesting and we will almost always look at a demerger opportunity and and i think um, everyone listening should should give it some thought as well these are these are uh, reliable sources of advantage that don't pop up all the time. Gentlemen, we're all nodding along, but um, I think it's time to <laughs> end this. Mickey, thanks very much for your time today. Thanks, Gaurav. JG, thank you for joining me. Thanks, Gaurav. Thanks, Mickey. And for everyone else, thank you for listening. <laughs>